Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 8th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardout, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast on all things California-related appellate law. We've got something of a special show for you today. It's a fairly infrequent privilege I have to break news on our podcast, but today's episode just about does that in tandem with the story that ran in our newspaper today. And that bit of news is a big announcement from California's first district court of appeal, the Bay Area court system that constitutes a significant portion of the state's appellate judiciary. This week, the district proposed a rule change that would, if formally adopted, make it the first California appellate court system to, on a district-wide basis, allow the use of tentative opinions to be issued in advance of oral argument. To folks unfamiliar with the niceties of appellate procedure, the use of tentative opinions is relatively rare, and so the adoption of that practice by one of the state's biggest appellate courts could be rightly described as a fairly big deal. Interestingly, one lone appellate division out in Riverside spearheaded the use of tentative opinions a generation ago, but it remained the outlier until a couple other divisions started experimenting with the practice in the last few years. But now, with the first district's new proposal, accompanied by what's been a steady drumbeat of support from appellate practitioners, it seems we might be close to a tipping point, past which the use of tentative opinions becomes more and more common. Supporters of the idea, both jurists and attorneys, tend to rally around a couple of key benefits, namely, that draft opinions released in advance will give counselors a much better sense of how to prepare for oral argument and, as a result, make those oral arguments more cohesive and useful for courts. Attorneys appreciate the foreknowledge that helps them marshal their finite time and research efforts, and clients also could benefit from the practice as attorneys that meet a decisive-seeming tentative opinion might see fit to waive oral argument altogether, saving everyone some time and money. The practice is not without its potential pitfalls, though. For one, it could create more work for courts. And of a special concern to attorneys on the predicted losing end of tentative opinions, it could create some decisional momentum in the direction of those draft rulings that attorneys and courts themselves might struggle to counteract. To help us identify and weigh all of those issues and concerns, I'll be joined in just a moment by Justice Jim Humes, the First District's Administrative Presiding Justice, from that role, he has overseen, and I think it's fair to say been behind, advocating for the tentative opinion proposal released this week. And then we'll hear from two prominent members of the state appellate bar, John Taylor Jr. and Kurt Jenkins, both partners at Horvitz and Levy, and also both vice presidents of the California Academy of Appellate Lawyers. But just for a quick moment before welcoming in those guests, let me remind you of just a couple of things. First, as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. It's very simple to retrieve. All you need to do is, after listening to this episode, go to dailyjournal.com and find this podcast. There should be a link on that page. It takes you to a short true-false test. If you complete that and tender the fairly nominal fee, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. It's very helpful. If you do go find that test and take it as it helps us continue to bring you this podcast outside of our usual paywall. And also one other thing, if you have not been perusing the pages of our newspaper this week, I encourage you to do so. Our reporter, Justin Klosko, has been going through a number of layers of shoe leather, getting to the bottom of a remarkable case that seems to implicate a prominent local plaintiff attorney and perhaps the city attorney's office itself in some pretty concerning behavior. The case involves what seems like a special counsel hired by the city attorney, effectively representing both sides of a class action suit. Perhaps, Justin wrote in today's paper, with the awareness of the city attorney. But that just scratches the surface. It's a very remarkable case and a striking string of stories from Justin Clasco. I really do encourage you to go check them out. Without any further ado, then, I'm privileged to welcome in the Administrative Presiding Justice of the First District Court of Appeal. His name is Jim Humes, and he's here to talk a bit more about his district's proposed rule that could meaningfully impact state appellate practice up there in the Bay Area. Justice Humes, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so proposed new rule, 15B, um, of the revamped local rules for the 1st District has gotten a bit of attention in our newspaper and among appellate practitioners since it was released earlier this week. And, and, and that rule, um, were it formally adopted, would allow um, panels in the, entire, in the entire district to, at their discretion, uh, put out tentative opinions before oral argument, which would be the first time that uh, practice had been adopted by a, a full district. Um, first off, uh, tell me a bit about the, the provenance of this proposal, sort of how 
long it's been bandied about, how long it's been worked on, how the idea started, and how this proposal eventually came to fruition. Well, the the practitioners, lawyers have who argue in front of us have long wanted to have uh, the court issue tentative opinions in their cases, or at least a significant number of them have. And uh, over the years, I mean, for many, many years, they've advocated uh, they've advocated for tentative opinions. And um, you know, I think I think a lot of justices here thought that they um, that they had made some good points, and that tentative opinions might play. A role in um, in helping oral arguments be better and more focused, and so uh, recently when we started to dis- we started evaluating whether to um, change our local rules, we decided to um, include this proposal for the justices to think about, and uh, and and this proposal is the outcome of that discussion. Over the the years, as you say, that when uh, appellate attorneys have um, advocated for this particular. Change. What what are the the main reasons given um, for uh, for for their hoping uh, for for this uh, change in policy? Uh, okay. Well, what I mean, their interest in tentative opinions, that is, the party's interest, and uh, are different than the court's interest in tentative opinions. But the party's interest, as I understand them, basically is they want to. Um, I mean, it's no secret that in most cases a draft opinion of a, of a decision has been has been prepared before the oral argument and uh, i think many practitioners just you know know that that draft opinion has exists and they'd like to see it so that they could uh, you know um, challenge anything in it or support anything in it or just have a more uh, clear idea of where the panel is going um, in the case so that they could uh, prepare uh, for a better and more focused oral argument and I imagine a better and more focused oral argument is uh, to the benefit of the court as well. Is that one of are there? Well, maybe or maybe not. Okay. I mean, I mean that that's the party's interest. The parties basically want to uh, have advance. I think the parties basically want to have advance notice of a of a decision so that if they're on the losing side, that they can do what they can to try to um, you know stop their sh- their ship from sinking. And so, you know, if they get noticed that the court is leaning one direction, they're going to come in here and at the oral argument and and uh, and make the best case they they can that the ship shouldn't sink. But the but the court's interest is not necessarily in helping any particular party stop their ship from sinking. The court's interest is just to uh, uh, make the right decision, and it may or it may not feel like it needs to have a more focused argument um, to help it do that. Then, then what might you see as the principal benefits of, of uh, issuing tentative opinions from the perspective of the court? Uh, two things. I think that some some justices will appreciate. Um, I mean, some cases are close, and some cases are not easy, and some ca- some judges are very. Uh, you know, they've they've wrestled with an issue, and they're still not sure exactly where they're going to land, and uh, maybe the briefing didn't uh, you know didn't fully uh, address a particular point that they're concerned with. And so they may want to issue a tentative opinion to really focus the parties on the way they're looking at it and to get a response to see whether or not you know that the response makes sense and to see if the judges' uh, views are, are 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 right. So you know I think some judges will use tentative opinions once in a while to just flush out the issues with a little bit more focus and a little bit more detail uh, because they just generally want help in in that area. Um, I also think that some justices, you know, many of these cases that we see aren't all that hard and the parties have had, you know, 45 pages or so to brief their arguments. So uh, sometimes not a lot more needs to be said about a particular issue or a particular case for that matter. And in those instances, a tentative opinion might be helpful to the court because, uh, and to the parties because the, the tentative issue, the, the tentative opinion would issue and the parties would see that, uh, the writing is on the wall, and they may cancel the oral argument and not uh, expend the uh, costs and the effort to uh, to challenge it because the, the because there's no basis to do so. So I, I you know I think that the tentative opinions may be beneficial to the court and to the parties in a number of different ways. Sure. Okay, now the the district has had a practice of issuing on occasion, I understand, uh, focus letters, which um, are not tentative opinions, but are you know something sort of in that direction, ideas from the court as to what the sort of central main issues of a case are that should be dwelt on most at argument. Um, what's the, the main difference between those 
uh, focus letters and, and now what would be uh, tentative opinions being issued? Uh, focus letters basically are just telling the parties, hey, we want you to come in here to the oral argument and be focused on uh, on a certain subject. And and that does provide some help and guidance to the parties in preparing for their ar- argument to know what the court's main concerns are. Uh, the attentive opinion would be, you know, issuing uh, an actual draft opinion. So it would not only tell the parties about certain areas that the court uh, may be focused on, it would tell the parties exactly the analysis that the court was considering adopting with regard to that area of focus. So it would just provide the parties with a lot more detail about what the court was thinking before the oral argument. Okay, maybe just a question about sort of the, the procedural nuts and bolts here. And obviously, they're um, still to be developed during the, the, the public comment period and before the final adoption. But what uh, what would sort of the, the timing be like for a tentative opinion? Would it be uh, obviously in advance of oral argument by what, like a week, a couple of weeks, a day? Um, would, how, how much time do you think it would give attorneys to uh, to read it and, and, and recalibrate perhaps their, their arguments? Well, yeah. Well, to your point, we'll see how the what happens in the uh, in the comment period, and maybe some comments will um, come in that will change the proposal. But I think the proposal is envisioned now is to leave it up to the division to decide, or the panel uh, to decide when they want to issue the the tentative opinion and how they might issue that. So, some um, some some panels may issue the tentative opinion, you know, long before the oral argument, and some may not issue it until shortly before the oral argument. But I think under any scenario, the idea is to give the parties enough time before the oral argument to decide whether or not they even want to proceed with an oral argument in light of the tentative opinion. Sure. And we can maybe just dwell on that for, for one second, too. As you emphasized, sure. we've referenced the um, the discretion is with the, the panel. This is this wouldn't be a prescription for tentatives in every case at, at, with every panel, right? That's correct. There's a, there's uh, the justices here in the first district have a wide range of opinions about the the usefulness of tentative opinions. Some uh, are interested in using them on occasion, and some are not. So it it the whole idea be- behind this proposal is to basically um, uh, let the let the justices know and let parties know that justices may or may not issue tentative opinions in a case, and it's really going to be up to the individual justices who are handling a particular case to decide whether or not they want to use it um, in a particular case, and that'll be based on whether or not they think it's going to be useful. Sure. I, of course, wouldn't presume to know you know, any reasons why justices in your district might be less inclined to, to use tentative opinions, but I have in researching this case heard some views um, that a, a potential concern in, in issuing tentative opinions is that an appellate court be, could um, get itself a little bit more firmly set in its its views once they have been you know announced publicly before oral argument and, and that would perhaps uh, um, create a situation where the court would be harder to convince that oral argument to to revisit that tentative opinion it would just create some momentum um, in, in one particular direction you know in terms of that particular concern what uh, what thoughts do you have well I don't know I mean it, it I, I think it depends on the justice I mean I think some justices are more flexible than other justices just in general and some Justices um, have made up their minds um, before the opinion is even drafted, let alone after the opinion is drafted. So, and, and so other justices are very open to uh, uh, changes, and some are less so. So I, I don't know. I think that the use of a tentative opinion, I mean, in most cases, a ten, uh, like I've said, a draft opinion is already drafted. So if, if a justice is inclined to be very inflexible about a position after, you know, a position has been staked out in a tentative opinion, um, you know, they've already the draft opinion already exists. They've already staked out their position. So, I don't know that giving that tentative opinion to the um, parties is going to make it any more uh, more likely that the judge is going to change their mind, or any less likely that the judge is going to change their mind. Okay. Yeah, and the, and the fact that, as you say, in most instances, some sort of draft opinion is already written prior to oral argument would seem to cut against one other concern that I had seen that it would you know create more just work for appellate courts to make sure they have these tentative opinions ready to go. Um, do you think that uh, this rule could create a situation where there's um, a lot more work that needs to be done by, by panels before argument? Um, I think it's a legitimate concern because I think that issuing tentative opinions will uh, will cause the court to engage in more work. Um, for one thing, when we draft our tentative opinions, we have uh, internal citations and internal references um, that we share amongst each other but that we don't 
that, that come out by the by the time the, the opinion is um, um, given to the parties. And so all of that all of that work will have to be done on the front end rather than the back end. I mean, so uh, yeah, you're gonna the the opinion will need to be sort of uh, reworked for uh, for for the public when we issue the ten of opinions. That will cause some more work. And then after the oral argument, the opinion will have to be uh, to be worked on as it is now to be finalized for final uh, publication or issuance. So yeah, I can see that it would it would cause uh, it might cause some more work, and that might be and that's a legitimate concern, and that may be why some justices don't want to use it. Okay, we've said that this would be the the first time in an entire appellate district had sort of officially um, made itself amenable to this practice, but there have been divisions in California um, that have used this practice, uh, namely one in, in Riverside has done so for over 20 years now. To what extent in um, discussing this proposal did, did those examples from the, the divisions that have tried it help um, in, in advocating for this uh, this proposed rule? Um, it, yes, the uh, the practices of the there's two divisions I'm aware of that use tentative opinions in different ways, um, both in the South, one in the uh, fourth district and one in the second district. And uh, there's a law review article that is out there. It's in the Santa Clara Law Review, um, and that and it summarized the I think it was the um, practices of the uh, second district division that uses tentatives. Uh, but it was a it was a lengthy analysis of the pros and cons of tentative opinions, and um, um, you know I think a lot of us read that and uh, and uh, you know were uh, persuaded by it one way or another. Uh, it mentioned both good things and bad things about using tentative opinions, but on the on the whole, it was pretty positive. And um, I think in addition to that law review article, a number of justices, including myself, talked to other justices who actually used tentative opinions to get their thoughts on it. And most of the justices that use tentative opinions generally like it. Uh, and so, um, it was all the, it was all the more reason, um, in my mind that we here in the first district should at least let judges have the discretion of going forward with tentative opinions if they wanted to. We were just getting a lot of good feedback, some bad feedback, but it seemed to me that it made sense to let the, Panels have the discretion to do it if they wanted to. Sure. Um, yeah. So, even if the practice has been fairly rare at the appellate level, it's it's fairly commonplace at the the trial court level. Your uh, first jurist position was on on the appellate bench, so um, maybe you know it's hard to exactly um, articulate the reason for that difference. But do you have a sense of why it's seemed to be? why the appellate courts have seemed to be a bit more reluctant to issue tentative rulings as opposed to most of the California superior courts that, that use them pretty frequently? Um, <clears throat> no, except that, you know, in the, in the court of appeal, you've got an entire, you've got a record and you've got a very developed, uh, you've got very developed briefs in the trial court. You don't necessarily have, you know, the parties don't have as much time to either think about these issues or brief these issues. And so, and the trial court certainly has less time to, uh, to think about these issues. And so it seems to me like it, it does make more sense to do tentative opinions in the trial court because it's just, because these, the arguments and the issues are developing. Um, where as in the court of appeal, the arguments have pretty much crystallized. And typically if the parties haven't been able to really make their points and make them effectively in their, uh, extensive briefs, then, you know, I don't know, there's a, there may be a problem with the briefing. So, um, I just don't know that tentative opinions are as useful to the court in the court of appeal as they might be to the, uh, trial court judge. Okay. Um, your, your fellow presiding justice, um, Anthony Klein over in the second division has credited, um, in, in large part, sort of the new wave of recent appointees by the former governor, Jerry Brown, including yourself, uh, to to this district, um, for sort of coming in with with a, a fresh mindset and an openness to trying new things. Do you think um, those recent appointments and and, and those sort of uh, more amenable frames of mind have have been a, a part of the push towards um, this new idea? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I mean, the the court has changed um, pretty dramatically under the. Jerry Brown years, and just in terms of the number of justices here in the first district. So, uh, and and all of the 
all of the judges who have been appointed here in the last uh, eight years are relatively new, and uh, changes change oftentimes brings with it, you know, changes in policies and changes in approaches. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the you know the 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 judges who have been around for a long time and were pretty much set in their ways in terms of how they process cases may have been less likely to be embraced the idea of tentatives than the newer judges. Okay, just a couple more for you. I, um, you know, understand that this is obviously the the proposed rule that's gotten the most attention, but it's a a, a fairly fulsome revamping of the local rules. So, are there any other uh, items in there that you think are important to flag? I understand there's one re- relating to um, the time allotted for or- oral argument that has now been been changed. Is that right? Uh, well, it hasn't been changed. The our old local rules didn't talk about the time allotted for oral argument. Um, but the state rule um, has a default of 30 minutes. The new uh, rule, as proposed in our local rules, will give a default time of 15 minutes per side, and that conforms with the uh, default period in the second district. Um, now, on the on the time of oral argument, uh, it can be and often will be changed from that 15 minute default period. Uh, a lot of a lot of panels want to hear argument longer than 15 minutes. And some of them want to hear argument short for 15 minutes, and uh, they often uh, and will continue to notify parties in advance of differences in times. But the but the new rules do have a 15 minute default period, which didn't exist in the old in the old rules. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, but generally, the rules uh, don't make that many substantive changes. The but but I would say that the new rules are much more reader friendly and uh, much uh, easier to understand. And they they help um, I think practitioners uh, kind of uh, understand more about the way we do things, and I think it will help practitioners be um, more comfortable in dealing with uh, the first district. Great, and and as to that tentative opinion rules, if we stipulate that it is formally adopted here after the public comment period, how much of an impact? Uh, how noticeable do you think the change will be? I mean, how I guess often do you think these um, opinions might be rendered. Do you think the the change will seem sort of incremental, or do you think it'll seem like a a, a you know, whole new um, district? I think it'll be a very incremental change. I do not think that uh, most panels will be issuing uh, tentative opinions uh, very often. I think that they will do it occasionally. Um, I do think that uh, the more uh, that panels issue tentative opinions, the more likely they will uh, uh, issue them in the future. I mean, I think. It remains to be seen what the what we learned from the experiment, but I think that we'll probably learn uh, some good things, and I think that uh, panels will be more likely to issue them in cases um, after the, the the system gets up and running. But I don't think that they're going to be used um, often. I, I don't think that there's need for them often uh, to be used, and um, I'm sure that the practitioners will want them all the time, but I don't think the court's going to want to issue them all the time. Okay. Then uh, in, in the meanwhile, uh, what's the best way for uh, practitioners or other interested parties to uh, to submit comments about this uh, proposal? Uh, they can submit comments to the court clerk. Uh, his name is Charles Johnson. And just uh, submit the comments to, the, uh, uh, to him at the court's address, and they'll get to the right people. And we're, we're going to uh, organize all those comments and uh, look at them very carefully. And uh, then we'll have yet another vote uh, amongst the justices on a final set of rules. And once that vote takes place, the rules will go into effect 45 days after that. So um, I anticipate that we'll probably have a set of final uh, new rules in effect around July 1st, maybe August 1st. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Justice Jim Humes, the Administrative Presiding Justice in District 1. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. for some attorney perspective on the issue of tentative rulings and the first district's proposal. Happy to welcome in a couple of prominent members of our state's appellate bar. They're partners with Horvitz and Levy, also both vice presidents of the California Academy of Appellate Lawyers. First, let me welcome in John Taylor Jr. from the Horvitz office down here in Burbank. John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks. And also Kirk Jenkins, who's a partner in the Horvitz and Levy San Francisco office. Kirk, thanks for being on the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you. 
this proposed rule, the tentative opinion proposal out this week from the first district, um, as I understand it from Justice Humes, who listeners have just heard from, it's sort of the culmination of a, a good bit of maybe several years worth of a back and forth between practitioners in the court and the court itself um, over the issue. You know, as appellate practitioners yourselves and and officers of the California Academy of Appellate Lawyers, you know, John, have you been cognizant of that back and forth, that discussion, that debate these last few years, and has it been something that you've actually uh, participated in? Tell me a bit about about that. Well, there has been a statewide debate. Um for decades, uh, Division uh, Two of the of the Fourth District started a tentative opinion program back in the 90s, and and it has never really caught on anywhere else. Although appellate attorneys have loved it and have tried to encourage, and through their local bar associations, uh, other districts and divisions to adopt it. And I think in 2014, up in the Bay Area, where uh, the first district district is located, the San Francisco Bar actually tried uh, a proposal to amend one of the rules of court. It's so Rule 8.256 to require tentative opinions to be issued, and that would have been a statewide proposal that would have changed the procedure statewide. Nothing, nothing came of it. Um, most appellate attorneys were in favor of it, although the San Diego Bar Association uh, submitted an opposition, uh, but that didn't go anywhere. But maybe it, maybe it got some thinking going on in the first district, which eventually, you know, five years later, has has led to this proposal. Yep. Kirk, I'm also just trying to get a, a sense of, as as appellate attorneys see this proposal, I guess just how how big of a deal is it that potentially an entire district might adopt the, the practice? Uh, my view is that this is a uh, potential win-win-win for everybody involved if it really uh, uh, gets going. The, uh, the rule, as it's uh, written right now, uh, says that it is up to the panel as to whether they want to do a, a tentative opinion or not, but uh, hopefully it will catch on, and I suspect it will as time goes on. But uh, the change into this, uh, uh, it's a win for the uh, the lawyers because you can focus in and, and really sharpen your presentation on just one or two issues it, it, rather than being prepared to debate any issue in the case. It's a win for the courts because... They're better off if we're giving them uh, an analysis of exactly the issue or issues that you're interested in. And it's a win for the clients because um, uh, hopefully in, mo- in, more ca- in most cases, the, uh, uh, the cost of oral argument and the preparation time and all the rest of that is going to be cheaper. So uh, I think it's a great idea. John, speaking of some of those costs of oral argument or saved costs from waiving oral argument, you you described how in the early 1990s, the 4th District, 2nd Division was at the the real van of this movement in in adopting the use of tentatives before, a long time before anyone else has. But I understand there was some concern at that time over whether or not the use of them was sort of too encouraging or maybe sort of too persuasive towards appellate attorneys in the court to say they didn't have a winner of a case just yield oral argument that they perhaps wanted to make. And that actually got um, the issue sent up to the California Supreme Court as to whether or not there were some due process concerns there. Could you tell me a a bit more about that? Yes, um, we call it the Riverside Court because that's where it's located. They had a couple different forms of letters they would send out. Some would include you know, the tentative decision and would invite the attorneys to come and argue. But another form of the letter was very discouraging and basically said, we've, you know, read, we've read the briefs, we have a tentative opinion written, and the, uh, the message sent by the notice was, it's, it's unlikely uh, that anything's going to change if you show up, and it was very discouraging uh, to attorneys, I think maybe even coercive, to suggest they shouldn't come to oral argument. And that went up to the Supreme Court in a case called, um, I think it's People versus Pena. Uh, and the court did a couple interesting things. On the one hand, they basically said tentative opinions are fine. There's no constitutional problem with doing that. But the notice you're giving, which suggests to attorneys that oral argument will not change the result, is uh, goes too far and impinges on the, the constitutional requirement to permit oral argument. And therefore, they told the court they had to stop using that notice. And subsequently, the court um, did change the notice in a way that, that made clear that 
even though they had a, a tenant of opinion and, and didn't feel like they needed oral argument, you still could request it and it still could affect the outcome. So uh, that's that's the difference since uh, since the people versus painted decision. So as you say, in, in that decision, the California Supreme Court does say something pretty clearly that tentative opinions are fine. You just can't sort of overly discourage folks to waive their oral argument rights. But I imagine that there can be something of a fine line between an additional maybe note attached to a tentative opinion saying we're unlikely to change our mind as opposed to just a, a fairly unequivocally written tentative opinion that signals to the attorneys, hey, you know, we're pretty unlikely to change our mind. And yet in that ruling, it, it's it's not ambiguous that the California Supreme Court is perfectly okay with tentative rulings, right? Yes. The, that, the decision made it clear that they were, the idea of a tentative ruling is fine. It's just you can't send a notice that coerces people into giving up their right to oral argument if they want it. And uh, I would say even in cases where you read the opinion, you can see there's a strong basis that the court has. There may be reason still even then to, to request oral argument, uh, because sometimes courts can, in their tentative opinions, if you get a chance to see it, include language that may be too broad. Uh, there may be uh, ways you, you want to modif- have the mo- decision modified if you're a client that has institutional issues that could affect other cases down the road. So you may show up to tell the court, well, we recognize we're not going to win this one, but your language here goes beyond what you need to decide this case. And there may be an issue about publication where you want to show up uh, to tell the court why what they decided uh, should be limited to this case and shouldn't be uh, in a published decision, which could affect your client also. Kirk, do you have thoughts on, on that sort of situation, specifically say you're in a position where the court has put out a tentative opinion now that says they're pretty likely to rule against you? Is there any concern from you know standing in the shoes of an appellate attorney that now that that tentative opinion has been made public and everyone knows about it and you know the, the court might find themselves a bit more reluctant to reconsider that view do you think you're you have more of an up, uphill fight based on a negative tentative ruling than you would if that ruling had been held onto and, and not disclosed prior to the argument well that's that's part of the point that we're uh, a little bit talking around here now there's been some uh, uh, debate between the, uh, the the bench and the bar over exactly what it's called uh, over the years. But uh, because the appellate courts are on a time clock after they hear oral argument, there is a piece of paper in front of the court when they hear oral argument. Uh, some people say it basically is a tentative opinion. Uh, members of the courts occasionally say, well, it's more like a memo. So arguably they already do this in every case. Uh, is it going to be discouraging? I think that it probably depends on how 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 confident the appellate lawyer is. I know a lot of people that if you got a uh, uh, a tentative that was against you, um, if you had the perhaps the the client has you have a discussion with the client and the client doesn't want to go forward. Maybe it's not an earth shaking case, but uh, particularly more more uh, experienced appellate attorneys. I don't think would back off that challenge at all, uh, despite the fact that we've all heard the uh, the uh, judges making comments that the result very seldom changes after the oral argument. Uh, that's kind of what we do anyway, because as you're at the argument, uh, if you've been around long enough and have done it often enough, you have a fairly good idea of the the judges in front of you who's going your way and who's going who may be going the opposite way. And you're making the adjustment that we're talking about here. The the you know uh, Judge A or Judge B uh, may possibly be against me. I'll 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 raise I'll laser in my focus on uh, uh, him or her. You're doing that on the fly in the middle of the oral argument. What the tentative opinion does for you is it tells you several days ahead of time, so you can get better prepared to make that adjustment uh, with more time to make it. John, I. I've gathered from from speaking with with Justice Humes that the majority of the judges, and obviously the majority, approve this proposed rule. But uh, you know, say probably most uh, justices on the first district bench, he said, were supportive of the idea. But uh, it sounds like there, you know, some folks with concerns. It it seems to me that it's nearly unanimous that the appellate attorneys I've talked to think this is the right way to go. You know, in your experience at your firm or with the, the Academy of Appellate Lawyers, do you think that uh, this is a, it's fair to say that 
pretty much all all the attorneys that have considered the idea are, are pretty supportive of the move. Yes, I, I was at a, a bench bar event a couple of weeks ago where three of the newer justices on the second district were talking to a room of appellate attorneys, the LA County Bar Appellate Court section, and there were probably a hundred attorneys in the room, or eighty to a hundred, and and they asked, you know, how many people are in favor of tentative opinions, and I think all the hands in the room except two people went up. And, you know, that I think is pretty much the sense I'm getting from my discussions with fellow attorneys at the academy and other places. Um, one thing in particular I like about the first district's um, rule is that it's calling for issuance of, of tentative opinions in advance of oral argument. Um, Division 8 down in, in the second district for, for a few years was issuing them like right on the day of argument. You'd show up and you could, uh, I think initially they were announcing them from the bench and then after that they began having a little slip of paper that you could read when you showed up. But now they have moved to a, a process where at least three days before argument they send out uh, a summary of what their tentative opinion is. And that's so much more useful to the court. I think that's what the first, to the attorneys, I think that's what the first district is doing here too because it allows you to really focus your preparation time on what the court wants to hear. So often you'll you'll have a case with maybe you know multiple issues, and you go into argument and you find out you spent hours and hours and hours preparing things that aren't really what the court is interested in. And this way, in advance of the argument, you're told here's what the court is really want you know really wants to know about. Here's where their issue, their problems are with whatever arguments have been presented. Here's the kind of questions that they might want to have addressed, and you can really zero in on those things. And that makes the oral arguments more focused, sometimes shorter. A lot of times uh, attorneys will decide to waive oral argument, which is you know helps judicial economy. Um, but all around, it, it saves costs for the litigants and I think time for the court. Drilling down a, a little bit deeper just to figure out you know, at what point receiving a tentative would be most useful. So, John, you say the day of. It doesn't help a whole lot because you've, if you've already spent those hours dealing with issues that aren't going to come up and you learn about it the day of, you can't go back and save those hours. So would something like a week, a, a couple of weeks before the argument be, you think, kind of the, the right time for something like this ruling to come down? Um, John Oleski and Kirk, feel free to jump in too. Yeah, ideally, a week, a week in advance would be perfect. I think that's about the right amount of time when people really start gearing up for arguments. Um, but even the three to four day minimum that the, the second district is providing now is is good because you could spend the first few days of your preparation, you know, re, re, reviewing the record and getting familiar with everything in the case again. And then the last few days when you get that tentative opinion, really focusing on the legal issues you want to present. So I think, you know, three to four days is good. A whole week would be ideal. Uh, I I think I uh, uh, agree with John. The if you want to maximize the uh, uh, the the savings to to everyone, I think roughly a week is uh, ideal. You you really have to get prepared to uh, debate any issue in the court uh, in the case to uh, to some extent, regardless, because you never know whether your opponent is going to bring something up that the court is going to get suddenly interested in. But uh, at about the one-week mark, if you know what the court at the moment is interested in, then you, you can really start to, to laser focus on on that issue. So I think that's the sweet spot. Just to also drill down a bit on the language, in specifically in the, this proposed Rule 15b. Um, so as we've been describing the issue, we, we sort of describe it as something of a a binary thing, either there aren't tentative opinions or there are. Um, but as the language provides here, it uh, sort of seems like it might be something of a, a middle way type of approach. It says that, you know, occasionally and in the sole discretion of a particular appellate panel, tentative opinions might be issued. So it doesn't sound like if the rule as proposed, at least, is, is formally adopted, that we're talking about a situation where you can always expect them to come. You know, Kirk, do you have any thoughts on this, the way that the, the rule is set out? Uh, well, obviously, the uh, for it to be issued, it must have uh, gotten uh, the support of a majority of the uh, uh, the justices on the uh, the court. Uh, my guess, and this is nothing more than a guess because I'm on the inside of the I'm not not rather on the inside of the court, is that uh, making it uh, uh, discretion discretionary with the uh, Individual panels was probably um, a compromise that they made in order to uh, 
uh, to get the proposal through. Uh, my suspicion is that uh, over time, over the next few years, that they will become increasingly widespread. Uh, the debate reminds me a little bit of a, uh, uh, a debate uh, that now is probably 10, 15 uh, years ago um, in the, uh, the federal courts uh, about um, citability of all cases and so, uh, uh, whether that was uh, allowable or not. And uh, uh, I'm sure John and I, we both heard uh, judges uh, at that point say that um, uh, essentially over my dead body uh, to the idea of being able to cite cases that uh, uh, were not uh, published. And it's now been years and it's, it's just a routine part of, uh, part of the practice now. Uh, I, I suspect this will probably go along a relatively similar path. Yeah, do you, do you have thoughts specifically as to the wording and of the rule and how it, the sort of reality it would precipitate? I do. I think it's interesting that they've left uh, the term tentative opinion somewhat undefined. I think what, as I mentioned, the, the process of tentative opinions really started back in the 90s in the 4th District. They were issuing full-blown opinions, basically with record citations, in them, you know, the whole shebang. And I think other courts felt that was just too difficult. I mean, they have to front load their process of the imposed uh, costs on the court they didn't want to take on. So what's happened in, in like the second district, um, they're doing in Division 8, for instance, short tentative opinions. They send them out by email, but they're not the whole opinion. They're just a, kind of an outline or a summary of what the court's deciding. And I think this particular rule is good because it doesn't require the the fourth district approach of issuing the entire opinion, it leaves tentative opinion somewhat undefined and I think allows leeway for the court to give maybe just a summary of, of where they're going so the attorneys can know how to focus their arguments without imposing on the court all the burdens that go along with getting an, an entire opinion ready for public consumption before the argument. Kirk, you were describing that uh, the, the other issue in, in federal courts that was a change that came about um, pretty slowly, and then once it came about, it was fairly um, it seemed, seemed fairly natural. Do you think that um, the maybe reason why it's it's been a you know decades long debate here is just sort of a traditional um, institutional inertia where judges and justices say you know this is just the way it's always been done, it, uh, hearing appellate cases without any tentative opinion, and so that's I guess you know that's the way it could continue to be. Do you think? that uh, new appointments have been the driver behind this rule change? You know, I guess, what do you think about the the way in which it seems like some of the momentum has really sort of quickly uh, picked up in the last few years and, and what might explain that? Well, I think there's uh, probably a degree of that going on because there have been uh, obviously quite a number of new appointments over the last uh, uh, six months to a year as the, uh, the Brown administration was... Uh, winding down. But I, I, I think not only the courts, but really a lot of organizations have kind of a built-in uh, inertia is not the word, more like conservatism, because um, the we've always been doing it this, this way, and we'd be uh, jumping into the unknown, and we don't really perceive a problem. And uh, how is this all going to work out? Uh, but uh, again, as I said a few minutes ago, um, I think once the rule is in place and people try it out and the the feedback uh, starts going back and forth between the uh, uh the participants in the judicial system I think the uh the lawyers are going to see uh, how much better it, better it makes us able to do our jobs and the the court is probably going to see an uh, uptick in the uh, the quality of the oral arguments that they're getting once everybody's cards are put on the table and the uh, the lawyers know uh, how the uh, the judges are thinking, and uh, uh, everything's out there. I, I just think there's there's some proselytizing going on among the justices themselves, and those who have adopted tentative opinions are finding their great benefits to the court, and they're telling their fellow justices about it. They they don't have to sit listening to the attorneys repeat what's in their briefs because now the attorneys know you know what they should be focusing on, and uh, tentatives are causing people to waive oral argument where they wouldn't before. So they're having to hear less oral arguments, you know, of the type that they find boring because, you know, they already know what they're going to do and the issues are pretty clear. And so 
you know, cases settle, oral arguments get waived, the, the justices are seeing the benefits, and I think that may be catching on. Now, the, the process when you, when you don't know, uh, when you haven't gotten an opinion from the court, it's a little bit analogous to, uh, uh, to walking through a minefield. When you come in and you're thoroughly prepared on everything and you have no idea what the court is thinking, it's to some extent analogous to taking a very careful step forward and seeing if you set off anything that you have to deal with, and then taking another and another and 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 trying to determine for yourself using your uh, uh, experience uh, exactly where the court is going. So uh, I, I think it inevitably makes the arguments better. Sure. I mean, that certainly sounds like a, a pretty treacherous and stressful scenario, obviously, for, for an appellate counsel. Uh, I have heard, though, from at least one appellate jurist that uh, that circumstance where you kind of don't know what's coming on either side um, can be beneficial, that if you, say, hone down or if the court signals that it wants to hone down arguments to just focus on a, a few key points, that uh, the court might lose the circumstance where all of a sudden they hear from a counsel that, uh, you know, this argument that the court just really hadn't considered or this point that they hadn't thought was that critical, that that argument uh, might come to them that, hey, that seems like something we should actually focus on. And if the tentative focuses the argument so much that those sort of maybe what seem like secondary or tertiary points aren't even brought up by attorneys, that the court could potentially lose something. You know, John, have you heard any argument like that? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. In fact, that happens now where you, you show up and the court really wants to focus on something that you think is not what the, what the case should be decided on, and you have to you know, try to get the court to look at some other issue that they haven't thoroughly considered. But how much better would it be to know in advance that the court is going off in a certain direction that you think is, is wrong, and you, you want to be prepared to go in and tell the court, look, you've overlooked this other important point that is crucial here you're deciding this case on a ground that you know really doesn't work if you have to think about this other issue which you've ignored and so i I think you know rather than having to do that on the fly when you show up and realize what's happening getting the chance ahead of time to be prepared for that is is a great advantage to you and i think also to the court in the sense that if the court's going the wrong direction better to let the parties know that ahead of time so they can come in with a, a really thorough and uh you know, convincing explanation about why the court should reconsider rather than having them sort of just come up with it in, in, on the fly on their feet. You know, there's this cliche about there's the opinion you prepare, the oral argument you prepare to give, the oral argument you actually give, and the oral argument you wish you'd given. And none of those are the same. But if you have, you know, a little advance notice about what the court is really concerned with, you can give an argument that's much closer to the one you plan and will be a better argument and, a, and one that will help the court more thoroughly. And yes, what, what uh, John was pointing out, that's a, um, uh, an issue that uh, attorneys are going to have to be really clear about it if and when this uh, order, order uh, rule excuse me, goes into effect, is that this isn't a, a signal when the opinion arrives that, oh, well, you can put the parts of the record that deal with those other arguments back on the shelf and just ignore them um, in your preparation. Uh, you have to be prepared to debate anything that's legitimately in the case, because absolutely that can happen, that something can uh, come out during oral argument that nobody's thought of, and suddenly the court does a uh, 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 90-degree turn and uh, goes off in a completely different direction, and you have to be ready to deal with it. But that doesn't change the fact that it uh, uh, it helps and streamlines the process during your your. Uh, 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 preparation that you now know uh, they don't think they're going in uh, directions A, B, and, and D. They they like C, and you can focus more intensely on C than the other issues. If I could just give one more story. I had a, an appeal up in Sacramento involves a federal statute, CEQA, and whether there should be CEQA preemption in a case. The, the briefs each devoted maybe one page to the issue of a state law preemption issue that was really a complete sideshow. We got there for argument, and the justices announced, we don't care about the federal preemption issue. All we want to know about is state law preemption. Well, neither side had really conceived that that would be the way the court was going to go. They ended up writing a a 50-page opinion based on really one page of argument from both sides' briefs and very little help at oral argument because neither side was really ready 
even argue that issue. No one really thought that was the direction the court was going to go. So if they had let us know ahead of time, they would have gotten a much better oral argument from both sides on that issue. Okay. Well, so then if that concern is not particularly troubling to either of you, you know, is there is there any drawback to the issuing of tentative opinions that you know either of you could conceive? Uh, Kirk, let me ask you. Uh, well, not to repeat myself, but the only thing that I uh, think is a potential drawback is uh, uh, lawyers will have to understand that uh, regardless of what the opinion actually says, you do have to be prepared to talk about anything. Uh, it's never going to be a, a valid excuse in the Court of Appeals' mind to say, well, that wasn't in your tentative opinion, so I'll have to get back to you. You have to be ready for anything that could potentially happen. I would say to the the San Francisco Bar's opposition to the, the 2014 proposed amendment, they, they said uh, the reason they were opposed, they, they thought that releasing the tentative opinion would, quote, tend to freeze the result because judges are reluctant to change their work product after it is in the public domain. I think that's the, the rationale we hear from justices quite often about why they don't want to put anything out there, because once they do, it would be embarrassing to have to you know, change their minds. But I, I just don't see that as a, a real concern. We... We have this tentative decision process in the trial courts. Trial courts put their tentatives out there all the time and change their minds all the time, and it's, it's not embarrassing. And if a result changes because of great oral advocacy, you know, in front of the just, justices, I really trust that their integrity would let them go back and, in light of those arguments, change the opinion, not you know, and not stick to some wrong result simply because they they put something in writing and put it out there. So. I, I just don't think that's a legitimate concern. As Kirk mentioned, they, they already have this tentative opinion in front of them when they hold oral argument. The only difference is they're letting the parties know about it. And uh, I, I think to the extent there is resistance once you've kind of decided how the case should come out, it's already there uh, through the, the process of having a tentative opinion. Whether you make it public or not, I don't think adds that much uh, to this sort of freeze, freezing in or locking in process. So all in all, I think it's, I can understand the, the, uh, the fear, but I think it, it's overblown and, and the, the benefits of the tentatives outweigh it. Sure. Okay. Uh, I think John is exactly right. One, one additional uh, minor point, there's been a lot of debate uh, in recent years uh, about the, uh, the value of oral argument, which is becoming more and more rare in states outside California, where it's not a matter of right. Uh, there's an initiative going on through the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers about trying to preserve uh, oral argument. Uh, I don't think it's a it's a bad thing at all if the uh, the court releases a tentative, uh, has people come in for oral argument, and then says, "Well, now that we've heard, uh, we this is our actually our final opinion," and I think it's to the court's credit, and I think it's it, it adds to their their public reputation that um, we're, we're not infallible, and oral argument is not a waste of time. Justice Liu did a, uh, an article a few years ago for a uh, law review where he was arguing uh, for the value of oral argument. Uh, if the court's implicit statement, yes, we are sufficiently fair and impartial, that if uh, the, the professionals come in and give us an idea we hadn't thought about or convince us that what we thought was the way this should go isn't actually the way this should go we're sufficiently open-minded to change that's that's to everyone's credit yeah we can start right but that, that was going to just be one other point i wanted to ask about was i certainly have been privy to that ongoing and rather unsolvable it seems debate in the california appellate community whether or not oral argument matters all that much and how often it actually changes a court's mind i was going to ask you know it, it, to any extent of this move could be seen as sort of an indirect uh, signal from the court that, you know, pretty often this draft opinion we have is not going to change that much. And so even if we do put it out and it's public and say you might worry that it's going to make it so we can't change our minds as easily, the fact is we tend not to, courts tend not to after oral argument. Um, I guess the question is to any extent, is it is it bad if folks interpret a rule like this to, to signal that there is less value at oral argument, or do you think anyone interprets it that way, uh, John? Well, I, you know, even though I'm a, I make my living doing oral arguments, I, I and I, and I'm saying these these are my cases, but I sit through oral arguments waiting for my cases to be argued, and there are a lot of cases where arguments 
should really not be held. I mean, the issues are pretty clear, and uh, there, there's no reason for um, them to be there. And so I think, sure, there are, there are arguments that are unnecessary, but in the cases where it is close and there's tough issues to be decided, oral argument is extremely valuable, and I think the tentative opinion process furthers that and, instead of making it worse. In Riverside, you know, where they've been doing this for many decades, they, they, they have a process where they actually signal when there's uh, a judge who doesn't agree with the tentative decision, and then they actually invite oral argument in that case. They say, here's our tentative opinion, but we want you to show up and give us argument. And so they're acknowledging that they're not even unified in what they're doing and that oral argument is valuable to them in trying to decide what the ultimate right result is, and they're even willing to put out there what you know they think will be the majority opinion, but signaling to the parties, we may, we may, you may be able to flip one of us. We may come out a different way. So come, come, try to persuade us. Um, Kirk, do you have any sort of clothing thoughts on how you might see the this playing out? And if you think, you know, now that the rule has been proposed, if it's fairly likely to be formally adopted? Do you imagine there could be any sort of pushback by the various stakeholders that will comment? I, I suspect there probably will be at least some uh, pushback, but uh, like John, everyone I've spoken to uh, thinks it's a, a good idea. I suspect that it probably, as it uh, kind of settles into place, assuming it's approved, that it will um, increase the number of waivers, but the the driver, uh, I've I've never vol- voluntarily waived an oral argument in my career, and the reason for that is because you never know uh, never know which side you're on. Uh, it's true that as in the current system, as you prepare and uh, then go in, there may be a tentative opinion sitting in front of them that says you won. Uh, but you don't know that. You don't know that they haven't, uh, in your view, misapprehended some issue. So you've got to go in there and do it. Uh, with these tentative opinions, it, with all kinds of clients, if I got one saying it came out exactly the way that I, I wanted it to come out with, uh, then there might have to be a discussion. Well, if the other side doesn't ask for oral argument, we're, we're fine with this being the opinion. So the, the waivers would, uh, uh, edge up, and on the other hand, if it came to me and uh, uh, said uh, uh, we lose for for whatever reason, then your your course is set. You know it's time to saddle up and uh, uh, and and get ready for the the argument uh, in a fairly intense way. Uh, I think it's going to. I, I hope it's going to pass. I think it's going to be a very successful uh, change for everybody concerned. Uh, John, any parting words? I guess the, uh, one other reservation I, w- I would have, and it's not a serious one, is it, it would it would be less fun and a little demoralizing to get your tentative opinion knowing you're going in as the, you know the losing party. Uh, right now, you know, kind of ignorance is bliss in a way. Uh, you, you can hide your head in the sand a little bit and and believe you know you have a strong argument until you get actually into court and maybe find out otherwise. And so that that kind of hope hope keeps you going. And it might be a little tougher to prepare for your arguments where you know in advance you've got a big uphill battle. But, but you know, that's the job we're paid to do. And I think knowledge is, is better. It's better to know that's coming and, and try to figure out a way to address it. So all in all, I, you know, I think this is a, is a good proposal. I, I think it will, as Kirk said, get strong support from the bar. And I hope, I hope the justices will, uh, will adopt it. Certainly a, a lot of different fascinating dynamics here at play. I appreciate you both being here to chat with me about them. John Taylor. Uh, here from Horvitz and Levy in Burbank. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. And Kirk Jenkins up in San Francisco. Thank you for being here as well. Thank you. And that's our show for March 8th, 2019. Thanks one more time to all of my guests, Justice Jim Humes, and also John Taylor Jr. and Kirk Jenkins from Horvitz and Levy. Thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can very easily be yours if you just go find it on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears and take one short and simple true-false test also to obtain it. Don't forget also we are easily accessible on the go and have been for the past few months now. You can find us on the podcast app or really anywhere that you tend to stream this sort of media search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal, you should find us. Uh, And doing so, subscribing to the show and leaving a rating or review 
It's very helpful. It lets us know what we could be doing better and also helps people find the program. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.